2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amari Averett Phillips, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Cedric Johnson about his new book, After Black Lives Matter Policing an Anti Capitalist Struggle. Dr. Cedric Johnson, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here.
2: Right, we're glad to have you. Uh, so, Dr. Johnson, I wonder if you could just begin the interview just by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I'm a professor at uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. I've been there since 2011, uh, teach courses in black studies and political science. And this year I happen to be in the Los Angeles area, uh, working as a visiting professor at a school called Art Center, College of Design. So I'll be here until August and then I'm heading back to Chicago.
2: Awesome. How do you like LA so far as compared to Chicago?
1: I mean, I love it. I know LA has a bad reputation. You know, a lot of people talk about it. I think people rely on uh, stereotypes about LA and, you know, generalizations that don't really take into account how many, you know, millions of people actually live here and so many different layers, uh, you know, social life that are going on here. So I I like it. I've been in love with LA for a while um, as a place. Uh, So it's great to be here. There's a lot of great things about it. Um, I can't think of one city that has as much uh, diversity in terms of the natural landscape. You know, you've got mountains, ocean, and even desert, you know, close by. So there's not too many places like that.
2: Yeah, as as someone that's originally from the L.A. area and has lived in Chicago too, I, I completely concur with all of that. <laughs> uh, Episode right? <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, so for, for this project, how how did you actually come to this project?
1: Yes, yeah, so you know, like everybody else, right? I I was uh, you know outraged at the killing of uh, Oscar Grant. You know, I was outraged at the, the killing of uh, Trayvon Martin. And, you know, I've been following these events like any other citizen. Um, and so I think that's that's part of where it started. But as I was writing the book, I started reflecting on how long I had been concerned about questions of, of carceral power and policing. And it goes back to growing up in Louisiana. You know, I, I grew up in Louisiana. I was an adolescent during the Reagan Bush years. And, you know, saw a, a version of the crack crisis in like rural and small town Louisiana and smaller cities. And, um, you know, lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, spent a lot of time in New Orleans as a, as a kid once I had a car and um, got a chance to really witness some of that. Right. Where it's, you know, not only um, the ramped up policing, but also the social consequences of, you know, increased uh, crime and violence within the communities I was a part of. And um, at a pretty young age, I mean, you know, as a freshman in, in college, I'm already opposing the death penalty in the state of Louisiana, right? As a 17 year old, um, about two years later, I'm taking a group of younger black males to visit one of the, the uh, penitentiaries, you know, one of the, the uh, prisons in Louisiana. And so I think it was a part of, of the, you know, the atmosphere of Louisiana and so many other places at that time where we weren't using terms like mass incarceration. We weren't talking about it in with the sophistication that people are now. But it was it was palpable. Right. You know, you knew more young men were going to jail. Um, we responded with ideas about moral rehabilitation and kind of steering people away from jail and taking responsibility. This was all the years before, like the Million Man March. Um, and so I was in it in that regard, right? That's where I kind of came into it as a younger person. And, you know, it took a while to kind of sort out my ideas on it. But I think, you know, with the 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 high-profile killings of Oscar Grant, you know, uh, Trayvon Martin, you know, uh, Michael Brown, it really, it, it made me feel on the one hand that, you know, um, this is something I, I care about, right, as an as a issue. But I also realized that, the arguments people were making about the the causes, like how, why is this happening, right? Uh, I felt were inadequate and I wasn't seeing um, an analysis that really reflected the social reality as I had experienced it in Louisiana, in the DC metro area, you know, during the 90s uh, where I lived for a long time, in Rochester, New York, where I lived for a long time, or in Chicago for that matter, right? So just experientially, it felt like it was a limited interpretation that was popular, right? In terms of how people were explaining the the problem. So I felt the need to write something. I started writing shorter pieces in places like Jacobin and elsewhere. And uh, after a while it just became clear that that I need to offer a full on uh, interpretation or alternative account of what was happening. How did we get here? Um, What needed to be done and how we can you know, address this crisis that we're in the midst of.
2: Absolutely. Um, so what is your the overall argument that you have for this particular book? So,
1: I mean, the one thing I was trying to do is to try to ground the, the problem of policing as we see it at this particular moment, not in slavery, right? Not in uh, Jim Crow segregation, not even as a, a new version of Jim Crow, right? But But instead to think about it in terms of um, the kind of capitalist society we live in at this moment, and to see carceral expansion and, and harsh policing as a part of that society, not an exception, but very much a part of it, right? And that was the challenge: to like step into this space where so many people. I mean, every you know activist meeting you go to, every protest. Uh, students in my classes, colleagues, you know, standing around talking about these issues, you know, in our office building, uh, at departmental functions. Everybody kind of has this this accepted view that this is all about race. Uh, it's primarily about race and racism. And that leads to a certain limited set of, of possibilities as far as what we should be doing to address it. And um, nowhere in the book do I deny the history of slavery, the history of general segregation, even though when people read the title or read, you know, sound bites, they assume that's what I'm saying. Um, but I do think we need to historicize the problem, right? It really is a problem that takes shape um, during the, the post-war, post-World War II years and the reorganization of cities and resegregation of cities even sharp, even more sharply along uh, class and racial lines, right? That's really when the problems begin. So. The main argument, you know, is just to, to resituate the problem of policing within the context of capitalism to see it as a function of um, the type of capitalism we're in, which is—I uh, don't like using the term post-industrial so much because we still have industries, but it's a good marker for where we are. We're not in the same Fordist economy that we had, at least domestically. Um, Back during the 1920s and 30s and 40s, right, this is a different economy. Um, the kinds of manufacturing jobs that were available to people at entry level um, don't exist in the same volume, and so we're in a different a different moment. And I think again, policing is one way we've chosen to address, you know, the problems of the hardcore unemployed and underemployed in our society, uh, instead of using. A welfare state and a more more progressive or benevolent solution to the predicament that so many people find themselves in
2: yeah and you you write in your introduction sort of to speak to what you just sort of spoke about there that the book sort of embarks on a conjectural analysis of carceral power and anti-policing struggles in hope of illuminating how policing functions within late capitalism um so the question i have for you around this could you explain to us just how does, in your analysis, police function within sort of late capitalism?
1: So a lot of, a few different ways that are important to think about. Um, you know, we get the, we get the carceral expansion, um, you know, uh, not necessarily as, um, it's not really a profit driven phenomenon, right? There's a way that people, you know, adapted the phrase uh, prison industrial complex. Um, as a way to explain the prison expansion, and that's not really the motive force, right? It's not said that there's a money that's being made, right? There's pro- for-profit prisons, there's contractors who work with prisons, there's jobs that are produced. So it's it's not said that, that isn't a part of the the, uh, the broader picture, but really, you know, wrapped up policing and um, you know the expansion of of, of, of uh, prisons. is really a um, as Loic Waquan and other folks have pointed out, it's really a, a, a matter of statecraft, right? It was an attempt to respond to anxieties around crime, whether those were real or imagined. And it wasn't just white suburbanites, you know, who, who pushed that, that expansion, right? I mean, the, the, one of the best books to do this, I think, is uh, James Foreman Jr.'s Locking Up Our Own, Um, because it's so nuanced and so helpful as a history of places like Washington, D.C., which, you know, had a Black majority um, for a long time and still produced some pretty harsh laws around uh, dealing with, with drug crimes and, you know, had some really, I guess, unintended consequences in terms of expanding the prison population in that particular jurisdiction. So I think that on the one side, you know, the response that we get from the state and particularly from like local jurisdictions to to ramp up police and spend more money on police this is really about trying to assuage the concerns or fears um that people have about crime and some of that's real right i mean you know in the case of foreman what he's talking about in dc is very much real some of it is also imagined you know and and, and it's. Uh, there are people who worry about cities who shouldn't be worrying about them, you know, and shouldn't be worrying about their, their personal safety. But um, that's part of what drives it, is like this this uh, the moral panic, but then underneath it, um, the need for politicians to do something. And one way to signal that they're doing something, especially in a period in which the country is pivoting away from welfare spending, is to ramp up uh, spending on policing and, and um, hardware, and the numbers of police and all these other you know things that would be used to try to pull down the numbers. Um, so there's that part. We can set aside the statecraft and dealing with the moral panic. The other part of it, and um, you know, in terms of managing surplus population, right? I use that term throughout the book and try to define it in a few places. Uh, it's a term taken from from uh, Marx's Capital. It's a term that has deeper origins in, you know, Thomas Malthus, who he, he's responding to. But what he's referring to are not people who are surplus in the sense of being, um, you know, surplus humanity, right? They are made surplus um, based on the the, the uh, requirements of capital, the labor needs of capitalists. So people are not really uh, needed, right? Their lives then become... Uh, Extrinsic, unnecessary, right, with respect to, to uh, the, the everyday workings of, of um, the economy that we have. And so, what happens in, that, in the, the place when, you know, situation when those folks are displaced in that manner, right? Um, what we see police doing is managing those folks who are now relying on um, criminalized forms of work. Uh, people are committing survival crimes, you know, petty burglaries, robberies, in order to get things that they need, and um, police tend to manage them not not just in terms of of arrest, but the longer process of uh, court supervision that comes even after somebody has been incarcerated is really important for thinking about the ways that um, you know this population is being managed, right, and and in some ways prepared enforced into a position of, of low-wage uh, labor, given the job requirements that exist for those persons who are formerly incarcerated and under, you know, a probationary uh, status, right? So I think I think there's ways that it the, the state goes to work even after a person's been incarcerated and shapes their lives. Um, many people are forced to have to um, take on, you know, very low-wage jobs and oftentimes comp- compete against... Other types of surplus populations, such as undocumented workers, right, who are pulled into our economy, again, to work jobs that have been, um, they're not intrinsically low wage, but they have been made low wage uh, as a consequence of decisions, both uh, at the state and also private level. So I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of different ways in which the, the uh, policing works to manage the, the surplus um, and manage popular anxieties around around crime.
2: And again, your your argument is not that race is not important when we think about sort of the ideas of policing, but I I do wonder uh, if, if you could just sort of talk to us a little bit about what, what are some of the limitations that we uh, sort of fall into uh, when we focus solely on race as sort of the target of policing? And then conversely, right, what do we gain from expanding our under- our understanding of how police target individuals for more than just their race? Mm-hmm. So...
1: Um what do we miss? Let's start with that part. And maybe let me say something else before that, um, just as a a bit of a clarification, right? So um, as I mentioned at the beginning, right? I mean, I came into these conversations in the 80s and early 90s, uh, teenager, early 20-something. And, you know, the, the first groups to really respond to this and to really put to put slogans to it and to begin to think about it in, in a way that was, um, you know, to p- politicize the changes that were happening and even resist them, you know, it came from, from Black people, right? It came from civil rights organizations. It came from uh, local clergy and, you know, community-based activists who were responding to specific incidents in their communities. Um, and it came, you know, in, in the realm of popular culture from young people. Uh, teenage and, and early 20-something rappers uh, who talked a lot about police violence, you know, in the 1980s. And that was important for me and for millions of other people because it helped to shape my understanding. This was not isolated. This was like systematic that people in Philadelphia, people in Los Angeles, people in, you know, Miami, everybody's kind of dealing with the same problems. And so certainly limited. And I'll talk about some of the limits in a second, but but I think it was it was it was formative and it was an important moment, right, to begin to call out uh, the problem as it was manifesting. Now, where we went wrong in that moment, you know, we one we saw it as an isolated problem that only Black people were facing, and that was that was true up to a point, but not necessarily, right? It was partially um, blind spots created by um, the urban theater, right, which we're still dealing with, right, where this is where the majority of Black people are. Um, this is where, uh, you know, most of us experience, um, you know, uh, politics and, and, you know, various issues. And so when, you, when we saw it in that place and we saw it sort of manifesting in, the, in that, that, um, that moment, you respond with it as an advocate. And I'm concerned about the community I live in. I'm concerned about the people who I'm associated with. And so it made sense to respond that way, but um, one of the glaring limitations there was really no systemic change that was in mind, right? It was it was at best we need uh, to fire bad cops and racist cops, and I'm talking about in the 80s and early 90s. We need better training. Um, we need possibly to hire black cops. People still making that argument, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s. And um, and then on the flip side, like I said earlier this whole moral rehabilitation platform where it was like, the main problem is with, you know, black men who are not disciplined enough and not responsible enough and not necessarily um, willing to take on the the role that they should, you know, within this patriarchal order. Right. And so it was a a rehashing of old school Moynihan thesis uh, conclusions, right. That, the problem was that black men needed to be men. And a lot of us embraced that, right? So like, for instance, when I talked about bringing those younger black males to to visit the prison, right? That was through a black male, uh, black manhood camp that I was a part of multiple summers, you know, when I was an undergrad. And it was something that was created out of the church that I grew up in. And every summer we would have kids from, you know, from Texas, different parts of louisiana uh who would come out you know um the, most of the ones from texas was from like the golden triangle area you know um so like beaumont uh fort arthur like that area and so they would come out and we would spend time you know doing regular summer camp things but we would talk about like cooperative economics and you know uh being responsible like simple life skills type things but that was the that was the culture at that time, right? And 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 it was valuable, I think, you know, for some people. Some people didn't get that messaging as as young kids. But again, descending from that old Moynihan, you know, stuff, there was no focus on like political economy, right? This is a consequence of a society that no longer needs the same quantities of of living labor that it needed in previous periods. And so in addition to histories of discrimination, you've got black people who've been made obsolete. Um, by capital intensification within different industries, and so I think we didn't have that, right? We didn't have that kind of systematic analysis, and so the focus was always on personal responsibility and the need to be better leaders, and you know, so and I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm the first one to admit that I totally bought that, right? Like so many people, that was like the main way of thinking about it. And again, it was echoed through like popular culture, right? You know, you think about all those rap songs from the period. Um, I always show students in my class the, the video Self-Destruction, which, you know, uh, ensemble record, all these great rappers, mostly East Coast. I think Tone Loke might've been one of the few people who was like a West Coast rapper who was in that video. Um, but like when you listen to that video, they're talking about violence that's happening at hip hop concerts, but also violence, like, you know, in in different communities. And there's no, there's no discussion of um, what's wrong with the society, right? The most of the focus is on, you know, we have to do better, right? And then, you know, LA responded with, or the West Coast responded with, we're all in the same gang, like, I think a year later, similar record, right? It's like, we're all dealing with this crisis of gun violence, which was a serious, you know, serious business. I mean, I I was in multiple situations, you know, uh, in my twenties and thirties where, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the vicinity of gunshot, um, you know, incidents and uh, you know, gun incidents. And so, you know, again, it was real, right. This is a real problem, but the response that we gave primarily was, well, people just have to behave better, right. They need to get their acts together and not, not give in to, uh, to these problems. So I think the great thing about Black Lives Matter, right, and this is one one thing we can say about it as a positive, is that it does take us beyond the old moral rehabilitation uh, platform and does call out like the systematic problems. It does call out, um, you know, or make a case for some redistribution of resources away from uh, policing and carceral spending towards Investments in communities, so that's one major leap, you know, major step forward from from the earlier uh, opposition to to policing. But even still, right, it's limited because I think in talking about uh you know the notion of Black Lives Matter just as a as a slogan, it captures the reality in some places very well. So, like as you know, you know, having lived in Chicago, um, when we're talking about people who've been killed by police just in the last, you know, uh, six or seven years, over 70% of those persons are African-Americans, right? In a city where blacks only make up about one third of that total population. Um, the same is true for harassment stops around the same number of people, you know, same percentage, uh, who are stopped by police and not even charged, just stopped, you know, to run tags, to run the license. Um, um, Those persons are African-Americans, right? So in some places, I mean, it it clearly captures the phenomenon. But if you leave Chicago and you go downstate, you know, other parts of Illinois, small towns, if you drive to the Plain States, if you go to the desert Southwest uh, and even get outside these big metropolitan areas, there's still people who are being arrested, you know, and who are being stopped and harassed. But the demography shifts, right? And so... Part of what I wanted to do, and I don't spend a lot of time on this, and there's a few reasons why, is to point out that the national demography doesn't fit the, the Black Lives Matter slogan or the new Jim Crow slogan. And if it doesn't, what do we make it at, right? And it's, it's interesting. No matter how many times I give talks, you know, I've given like five or six in the last uh, month or so, uh, whenever I present that information to people, there's a, there's a reluctance to either accept it. And there's also an unwillingness to, to ponder what it means, right? If, if what we're looking at is a situation where we've got all sorts of different people, you know, from different different ethnic and racial backgrounds who are caught up in this carceral dragnet, what is it that unites them, right? That's a harder thing for people to, to, to deal with. And I think for one, you know, and again, if we re- rewind all the way back to the 1980s, you know, this country has, a, has a, a really clear history. I mean, this is not until, you know, the 1950s that we see um, the restoration of basic citizenship rights. And it's not immediate, it's not, it doesn't happen for black people immediately. It has to be fought for and won and forced in, you know, one you know, county or another across the South. And so, you know, there's this longer problem of, of uh, racial segregation and denial of basic citizenship rights. So, you know, given that backdrop, um, you know, a lot of us were thinking this is just, this, this is the same problem, but it's actually a slightly different problem. And I think it was helpful. And I kind of, I spent a little bit of time talking about this in the book on uh, one chapter where I mentioned the second reconstruction, you know, even as the major civil rights leaders, you know, of Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and you know, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and CORE, and all these other groups, even as they're winning these major battles right across the South and forcing congressional action in the 1960s, they're really clear about the limitations of what they're doing. Right? They they really see it. You know, an, any civil rights historian will tell you this. Right? That they are very clear about limitations of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act—they know that achieving, um, you know, the restoration of the vote, achieving access to the consumer society in some ways is not going to guarantee um, genuine progress for millions of African Americans, right? Now, it does—it does help, right? And that's another thing I try to get into, both in the book but in my public talks, is that we should be able to do both of these things at the same time acknowledged that the second reconstruction greatly uh, expanded the, the black middle class it also helped to reduce uh, black poverty um, through a variety of different measures whether it's uh, public employment or um, you know the policies of, of the the uh, the great society and, and war on poverty right some of those didn't work they were effective and so I think um, You know, there's a way in which there's a way in which we should be able to say that that it helped, but also think about what those civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin and some of the other folks were saying, which is that we need something else. We need deeper forms of social democracy. Um, You know, major interventions that will address again the structural problem of unemployment that Black people in the 1960s are facing and Black activists and intellectuals are talking about, right? So Rustin mentions automation. Um, James Baldwin is talking about automation. Jimmy Boggs is talking about automation. And so many uh, Black intellectuals, you know, League of Revolutionary Black Workers, the Black Panthers, right? All sorts of folks are talking about the problem or the crisis that's being produced by automation. The problem at the time is that most uh, Americans haven't felt it yet, right? So the best expression for explaining it, you know, in my mind is that Black people in the 1950s and 60s, especially in the 60s in, in major cities, they're the canaries in the, in the coal mine. You know, they're the first ones to feel the dislocations um, and shocks of demobilization, right? You know, from from World War II. So the changes within the defense industries. And I can give a personal example of that, you know, that might be helpful. Um, They're the first ones to feel the changes in terms of, you know, some of the major cornerstones of the economy in places like Detroit or Chicago, right? So steel milling, automotive production. Um, Many black people are the first ones to be shut out of that picture, right? So I talk about James Box and his ideas and how he thought about that um, in the 1960s. But this is huge, right? And again, it's not like people are unaware, Right. They're totally aware of what's happening, but the consequences of it over the long haul, um, are not really clear, right? You know, some people are still saying, "Well, we need more job training," um, and then on this, on the other side, somebody like Box is like, "Well, no, it's not a job training issue, right? That you can't train people for jobs that are disappearing, right?" So I think this is really important. One example I get, maybe this will tie it all together, and then I can I can get into. You know um what happens when we begin to talk about it in terms of surplus population but a great example i like to use you know my my grandmother uh my dad's mom uh took a job at a place called Brooklyn air force base um and she was a beneficiary of like executive order 8802 right she was somebody who a black person from louisiana who gets a job at this air force base in mobile alabama and she's a person who's involved, you know, assembly line manufacturing. She's doing electroplating. So putting chrome on uh, airport airplane parts. Um, and she did that job until that base closed, right? And, and she lived in Mobile uh, with my grandfather. They had a nice house, you know, nice garden in the back. Neighborhood was stable, um, you know, all black people. People are, are, you know, strong social relations, people involved in all kinds of different benevolent associations. They're involved in uh, the Shriners and the Order of the Eastern Stars, all these different groups. Right. So that was the place I remembered as a kid, you know, because it was like, here's a group of black people working class. But it was through this employment, you know, stable employment in manufacturing, good wage that allowed them to buy a house and do the things that they wanted to do. Um, what would happen between the time my grandparents died uh, in the 80s to now is is incredible, right? I mean, it's like the bottom fell out of the neighborhood they used to be in, so much so that when I saw it years later as an adult, it was unrecognizable, right? That neighborhood that I remember, which was, you know, verdant, lush, all of these, you know, big trees, a lot of people outside talking, just a different kind of place um, than the one that it would become after the bottom falls out of that economy right and you no longer have uh people like my grandmother who's working a manufacturing job but one that allows her to have a decent life and so i think that story is repeated across the country right and it's one that we need to be aware of so it's not it's not um because the civil rights movement was necessarily a failure uh, in many ways, the changes during the New Deal, the changes during the Great Society, actually helped you know millions of people. It was just not enough to deal with the new problems that were on the horizon, right? And so I think, you know, unfortunately, we, we reached for uh, incarceration as a way of of trying to to deal with these problems, right? Um, what we could do, we could deal with them in other ways through public works, through cooperatives, through all sorts of other uh, strategies that could change you know, conditions for people through unionization, right? All sorts of things that could lift up, not everybody, but a lot of people, so that it ultimately changes the the conditions in, in some, um, some cities and towns and localities. What happens when we start to think about surplus population as opposed to thinking about this as a race issue, right? I think it, it should change the way that we, we not only see the problem, It should also change the ways in which we see ourselves connected to it, right? And it should change the solutions that we wanna propose, right? So if you think about it like this, um, if the problem is one of of racist cops, right? Then then for most of us, it's not a problem that we're implicated in. And I think that's an easy, it's also an easy narrative for a lot of whites, because it can be like, well, It's that, it's Derek Chauvin over there, right? It's Jason Van Dyke. Like those guys are the problem. It's not me. And I think when we think about it in terms of surplus population, it shifts the the concern. It's not just a focus of racist cops. This is a a mode of policing that's been secured and expanded and subsidized with the consent of millions of Americans, right? Hundreds of millions of Americans who rely on... Even if we don't pay attention to it, we rely on certain modes of policing, not just to make us feel safe personally, but to secure the lives that we enjoy within major metropolitan areas. And so if you go to gentrified zones to spend your time and get coffees and go to concerts or whatever else, that is made possible through the very policing and containment of the desperately poor and unemployed, right? The same thing is true if you purchase a house in a major metropolitan area where there's high real estate values. Those real estate values um, are made possible through the reproductive work of police, right, who are setting the ground, whether it's clearing out homeless encampments, whether it's making sure that there's relatively low crime so that people want to invest in a particular area, um, all of those things are connected, and so I think again when we talk about it in terms of policing surplus population as opposed to controlling black bodies, the more common, uh, you know, thematic, it should implicate us in a different way. That we all we all depend upon um, this mode of policing in some way or another, and if, if we all depend upon it, we should see ourselves as as, as implicated and guilty on some level of its perpetuation, right? We should see ourselves as responsible for changing it and get and come up with some different way of achieving public safety that doesn't rely on, you know, massive dispossession, uh, exclusion of people from the society, and warehousing of folks, you know, uh, within the criminal justice system. So I think it should completely reorient us, and I think it also, once we take responsibility for it, we have to come up with specific solutions on how we're going to address this. It's not just prosecution of Bad cops, right? That that just can't be the complete focus. I mean, yes, if a cop abuses their power, doesn't follow um, procedures, kills an innocent unarmed person, um, that person should be prosecuted. But that's not that's not the scope of the problem we're facing, right? I mean, it's such a it's, it's such a, a much larger and daunting problem to have to address this problem of relative surplus, because like I said, in the sixties, you've got people who are, you know, Baldwin, Boggs, they're saying, this is what's happening to young black men primarily, right? Um, in cities. But now, you know, when we drive across the country. I mean, these, these problems are more general, right? That they are, you know, blacks were the first because of their location and concentration within cities. But these are general problems of the society that aren't really reflected in unemployment numbers, right? Um, and even unemployment numbers, you know, people will call unemployment based on McDonald's jobs and gig economy stuff. So that that shouldn't count. Um, those are not the the kinds of wages that can sustain people, um, you know, in in the in the economies that we live in, especially in places like LA and and the Bay Area, you know. Um, which are unlivable. Right. I mean, so I think we have to, again, I think part of what I'm trying to do is not say that somehow the policing problem is not important. It's totally important, but it it is also a symptom of a much deeper problem in the society in terms of inequality that just isn't captured in a Black Lives Matter slogan. Right. It's not really... um, it's not really reflective um, fully. The other thing I'd say, and I, I skipped over this, but it's, it's worth noting. Even when we're talking about just black victims, right? There's a way that um, black people who've been killed by by police, there's a way that their blackness is foregrounded, uh, because that's what we see, right? I mean, and in, in, the, in the highly or hyper uh, visual. Uh, landscape of social media, right? You know, we see a viral video. I mean, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing, um, you know, white officer, Black person being brutalized. There's no denying that, right? Seeing is believing. What we miss, though, in some of these discourses and some of the framing of it, um, even by activists, is the common economic conditions of so many of the victims. Not all of them, but many of them, right? So, you know, usually when, when somebody's killed by, by police, you know, two immediate things happen, you know, almost, almost as soon as it becomes news, right? Uh, The Fraternal Order of Police and Blue Lives Matter forces step forward um, to assert the, the innocence of the officer, to justify the killing of whoever it was in some ways. And oftentimes that's done by trying to demonize the the victim, right? They'll bring out the person's rap sheet, they'll talk about what kind of life they lived, how much time, how often they've been in trouble with police. And that, that helps to fuel this idea that these people are, are ne'er-do-wells who got what was coming to them and, you know, police just acted in self-defense or under, uh, completely under the law. On the flip side, activists often deny that, right? They want to repress those kinds of details because of how it might, you know, the impugning of the victim might affect the outcome, like whether or not the police officer will be arrested. Uh, and they'll they'll instead focus on, you know, he was a family man, he had children, he was a loving, you know, uh, uncle or brother. And, and those things are all true, right? You know, it's possible for somebody to be both, to have had run-ins with police and to be a great person, right? So I think what's missing from this, oftentimes, right, is the kind of public framing or investigation that might allow us to say, oh, this person should not have been stopped to begin with because what they were doing shouldn't have been unlawful, right? So, you know, if you think about uh, Eric Garner, he's selling uh, Lucy's, right? So you buy a carton of cigarettes, you sell them, you break it open, you sell them one by one. Um, Alton Sterling, you know, uh, in in Baton Rouge, he's selling CDs, whether they were used or if they were pirated, it doesn't matter. It's just something that people do in different economies, you know, different parts of the the, uh, the the country. I know I bought those when I was a a student, right, and when I had less money. Um, so I think you know that a lot of these crimes that people have been uh, or end up in being arrest, arrested incidents that ultimately lead to, to violence, right? These are like, they're not even survival crimes, they're criminalized forms of work, right? The same for so many people who are involved in selling drugs, right? I mean, this is one way, again, in this economy that isn't optimal for some people to to gain some income. Um, and so I think if we look case by case, of course, there's exceptions. Um, this doesn't apply, apply to... Uh, you know, Tamir Rice, it doesn't apply to, uh, Breonna Taylor, all sorts of folks, but it does apply to many of the victims, right? Where they are people who were trying to live their lives, uh, oftentimes, you know, um, again, engaging in these criminalized forms of work to survive. And we have to ask ourselves, should those activities be criminalized? Whether it's, you know, um, petty drug dealing or sex work, you know, all these things that people end up being cycled in and out of the criminal justice system for. Um, It's also just glaringly, you know, it's a contradiction for sure when we have a country at this moment where in my home state of Louisiana, people are still being arrested for cannabis possession. But yet here in, in LA Metro, I mean, there's literally within a mile of me, there's three cannabis dispensaries, right? And so how is that how is that a just you know, uh, state of affairs where we can have people whose lives are ruined and the other side, people whose lives are enriched by the very same activity you know, in, in the country. So I just think there's, a, there's some deeper issues we can ask ourselves you know, when we begin to talk about not just the, the racism of particular officers or you know, the, the, the racism with instructors of society, but to talk about these, these deeper economic um, conditions that are a mark of our times. Yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And so you in this book sort of group these chapters together sort of like coupled um, based upon certain like concepts that you're looking at, right? And so I'd, I'd like to sort of skip past one and two, because um, I think we've sort of talked about a little bit of that, but I'd like to talk about chapters three and four,
0: mm-hmm.
2: Um where you look at sort of the first wave of black lives matter sort of movement um and i wonder if could you just explain sort of the you explain a little bit about the sort of like limitations of the first wave of the movement could you expand upon that and also a little bit about the importance of the first wave of this movement mm-hmm.
1: yeah i mean so i try to link the the first wave uh even before the hashtag i mean you know there are a number of of uh of um, killings that happen, you know, before the hashtag comes into existence. I mean, Oscar Grant being one of the, the ones that I think immediately comes to mind. Um, maybe also the killing of uh, Samuel the in Cincinnati, right? So there's there's a few you know there's a few instances where this is already happening right this, this is this is already a problem. We could even say you know we could go back to the '90s. You know I always tell students that Rodney King was the first viral video police you know uh, police beating right. Um, so we could we could go back and and look at this. So what's different though? I think is the issue. What's what makes Black Lives Matter different? Why why do we see such a massive outpouring? Um, a bit later and I think you know again there's the policing is the focus but it, it's not the only thing that's on people's minds right policing becomes sort of the the uh, you know the the way of organizing the flashpoint of organizing but there's deeper concerns I mean I actually think that the the Obama administration um, and the optics of an Obama presidency, has a lot to do with why Black Lives Matter emerges when it does, right? So from the moment he declares to when he's actually, you know, when it's clear he can become the president, he's under attack by the right. You know, there's the Tea Party folks that people question, you know, uh, Trump question his birth certificate, whether he's actually a citizen. Um, So there's, there's that from the very beginning. And a lot of us took offense to that, right? It's like, how dare you know, you know how dare somebody question uh, his viability his citizenship this was like a personal uh, offense for many people um and I think but I think what it did like the Obama the Obama arrival and like having a black family in the White House and you know one on the one side you get the the uh, you know the the colorblind, triumphalism for a moment, right? Different corners, people are like, oh, this is the, you know, this is a new day for America. And then the way in which that arrival of like a black president um, contrasts sharply with the conditions that people are experiencing as a result of the subprime mortgage crisis, right? Where, you know, places like Detroit, where I've got family, my sister's been there off and on since the 90s, um, You had majority of of the mortgages that were held in in Detroit before the subprime uh, crisis. The majority of those mortgages were held by black people. Right. That is that is overturned. Right. That that kind of like nominal uh, wealth gutted as a result of the subprime crisis. And so in the aftermath of that, I mean, there's this this sharp juxtaposition, the Obama uh, arrival, which. Is, is significant. I mean at the time I was critical of Obama politically, right? Like I didn't like his ideas as a as a politician. I still don't. But there's no denying like the the importance that had for many people in the society. I mean, I didn't even expect it, to be honest. Like I didn't I didn't think he was gonna win early on. And it took a while before it finally became clear that, you know, this this guy was gonna was gonna pull it off. But once he's in office, I just think it makes for many people that makes there's too much of a contradiction to bear. That not as finally a black president, but there's also these these deep denials uh, within the society that somehow racism still is a problem, or that there's deep inequality in the society. And then there's the real experiences that people are having, where you know they're losing jobs, they've lost a house, or they've had to short sell a house, or they've you know defaulted on a on a um, mortgage. And I think Black Lives Matter steps in as one expression of anxieties uh, widely felt around where the society is at that particular moment. And so the, the vigilante killing of Trayvon Martin, you know, it just becomes a flashpoint and a way for people to channel these broader anxieties. Right? So there's that part, but I just think like the new Jim Crow, it really misses the mark in terms of characterizing, you know, what the real problems are and it's such a you know such a liberal um response to these problems right it's very much about um the need for more equal protection you know uh it, it quickly takes in almost every case it takes this route of court justice you know which is necessary i'm not downplaying it right i want it, you know uh George Zimmerman to go to jail, right? I wanted to see these people prosecuted for the things that they did. Um, But that's just such a limited way of dealing with the broader problems, right? You know, such as stand your ground laws and, you know, more liberalization of gun ownership in the country, right? These are bigger issues that oftentimes are um, a part of the conversation, but they don't take up as much space as the kind of anti-racist, uh, you know, condemnations, which are necessary, but again, they, they tend to drain some of the energy from dealing with the structural, uh, concerns like, you know, gun ownership or the modes of policing that we've, we've grown and developed over the last few decades. So I think, um, yeah, in the early going, there's there's a way that Black Lives Matter really speaks to these deeper anxieties, right, that people are having about about the moment, you know. Um, but even then, I mean, I think you know we could we could talk about it. And I'll just say this, just for the benefit of your audience, I didn't write this as a uh, some sort of comprehensive treatment of Black Lives Matter. I've heard some people characterize it like it's it's not it's not intended to be that. It's it's a it's an intervention in the debates about police, and it's intervention in the debates about you know Black Lives Matter as a social force. But I don't I, I don't expect this to be read as some sort of broad, comprehensive uh, treatment. I mean, it's limited, and you know, there's so much that we we don't really know yet, right? Um, about some of these local campaigns, and 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 I didn't, you know, I'm not I'm not claiming. To have tried to do that, but I will say that it's interesting the way in which the abstraction kind of runs aground, right? So when it starts out we're in a situation of Trayvon Martin, people are protesting to try to get this guy, in you know, to try to get him uh, basically, you know, uh, charged with a crime. Right? And that's the main. That's the main goal early on, right? Um. But it's been interesting to watch as black lives matter shifted from one venue or one location to another how it faced different kinds of problems right and so when we got to st louis and the ferguson situation um after the killing of mike brown it's different right now we're looking at a sworn officer who's committed this act of violence and there is uh You know repressive response from local police to protesters that just allows you know really encourages um you know uh more protests it should it should spark like more in the way of of uh resistance to the kind of of tactics that were being used but in the end it gets steered in the direction of court justice right like how do we get this guy uh on trial um and I think, I think it's like, it's, it changes again, right? When it goes to much bigger, bigger cities. So when you leave Ferguson, which was, um, really a, a suburb, right? Part of a metropolitan region to places like Chicago and Baltimore, which I do talk about those two cities, um, black lives matters a phenomenon faces the fact of black governance, right. And black, uh, politicians in office and black people are part of police forces and it's a different terrain than than a ferguson i mean ferguson looked like some town from the old south where you got segregated black communities you got a mostly white police department um it, it looks like what we're familiar with what we you know is missing is the color on the uh signs right but the disparities in power are clearly there Baltimore, you can't say that, right? And I mean, you know, the four officers who were charged in the the death of Freddie Gray, all black, you know, so it's it's a different it's a different situation. Um, and I think, again, the the ideas about racial justice that many people were holding on to um, become more more difficult to assert in those contexts, right? Um, not impossible, but just more difficult. And what, what it should have precipitated was more discussion or thinking about, again, what is it that's going on here, right? It doesn't even matter you know, who the culprits are, like what their backgrounds are. All these sworn officers are carrying out the same regime. There's very similar regimes in different cities. And that is they are all being expected to police particular populations in these cities, right? Not everybody. Right. Um, you know, they're not they're not gonna arrest, you know, people like Marilyn Mosby or Lori Lightfoot, right? They're gonna they're gonna arrest working class people who are desperately poor. And again, those who are either involved on some level in the criminalized forms of work or they live in places where those forms of, of work are dominant, right? So it's just a different different perspective that we need to take. And I think the other thing too, last thing I'll say about the what Black Lives Matter uh, did and some of the, the limitations um, during that first wave, you know, it produced uh, a lot of chapters, a lot of local organizing, you know, people who use that vehicle to try to deal with some of the issues in their community. So, you know, I don't talk a whole lot about that. I do acknowledge it. Um, and I think, you know, again, this is where a lot of uh, much more work can be done um, to try to address some of those, those uh you know the realities of those those local campaigns, local organizations, but it also produces some some um, you know figures who are are uh, you know more more complicated and not necessarily align with the most radical <laughs> ideas or aspirations of you know. So it produces entrepreneurial type figures. It produces people who are. Uh, you know, self-interested, people who are hucksters, right? People who are just on to use this to catapult them to the next stage. Now, I don't spend a lot of time talking about them. I do talk about some of those those figures. My concern is that what it points out is the the limitations of how we think about politics, how we think about Black politics, right? Because I think there's a tendency to, to, to see You know, in in the frame of Black Lives Matter, this is an old school us versus them. But when you really look at the us side of it, there's a tremendous amount of ideological diversity. There's very different political interests at play. And I just think we have to shift our thinking away from, you know, some of these older race essentialist ideas about constituency and about politics. And if there's if there's no better way to see that, it has to be in the midst of Ferguson, where you've got all of these different figures who come about, who are coming out of the, the nonprofit world and the pro Teach for America world. Um, and even figures like, you know, there's the rapper, uh, Tef Poe, who was like, I, I'll talk about him for a minute, who's frustrated by the invasion of, of Ferguson with all of these different people from different parts of the country. And that's legit. You know, I don't I don't I don't dismiss him for saying that. But when you look at his ideas, I mean he's calling for the same kind of entrepreneurship and black ownership and these other ideas that we were talking about in the eighties and nineties, right? So I'm not really I don't have any faith in that as a way of addressing the problems that exist in Ferguson or anywhere else, but um, again, I think as it's as it's moved from Sanford, Florida, to you know uh, Ferguson, to Baltimore, Chicago, Minneapolis, all of these bigger, bigger stages, um, the simple formulas that we can talk about in a higher level of abstraction kind of run directly into real politics. Like, what does it mean to actually do something on the ground in these places? And are these these ideas about universal black uh, victims of police violence, universal uh, black politics, where we all seem to have some of the same views, those aren't really helpful on the ground, right? They're helpful, again, as high abstraction and maybe in the world of social media. But um, I think that should have been one of the lessons of the the first wave of of, uh, Black Lives Matter activism.
2: Well, Dr. Johnson, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, So I'll just ask one sort of last quick question here. Uh, What are you working on now?
1: Yeah, so uh, right now I've got a few things I'm working on, sort of smaller uh, reviews of other people's work. Um, I'm actually here, I'm here in California. Um, I was brought out here to, to work at Art Center College of Design for a year. Um, mainly to help students and staff and and faculty think about the public and social cost of the Olympics. Um, and, you know, the, LA is set to host its third Olympic Games, right, in, in uh, 2028. Uh, it's also going to be one of the sites or host cities for the 2026 World Cup. So it almost have like the same uh situation as as brazil right where they hosted the world cup and then the olympics back to back um so i've been doing that like and and i'm also working with a group of of uh filmmakers and um scholars who write about the olympics to think about uh, a potential oral history project on Working class Angelenos in the 1984 Olympics, which was a really signal moment, right? I mean, '84 is the year that Los Angeles surpasses Chicago as the largest city, you know, second largest city in the country, and it's really the year that that um, LA kind of, you know, because of the Olympics, gets this reputation of the, you know, this new global city within the U.S. uh, context, and it stayed there, right? I mean, of the top. 10 urban economies um you know new york la and chicago are the three american cities that are in that that mix and it's a great triumph of time for tom bradley right i mean tom bradley neglected an important figure uh, as you know but this is kind of like his crowning moment you know his crowning achievement you know the staging of the 84 games And then a lot of important technological developments that happened, right, during that period and and governing changes that happened. I mean, two quick things, you know, from what I understand, it was during the 84 Olympics that they piloted uh, a type of messaging service among the athletes and coaches that was a forerunner of email, right? It was a place like a messaging center where they could go and, you know, find out what was going on, you know, get directions on stuff. Um, and that was the that was a, a, a you know a precursor, right? And then the other big thing that happened, directly related to um, the Olympics going forward, is that Bradley helped to privatize the Olympics, right? And so '84 was one of the first years you had massive corporate sponsors, and I think part of what they were concerned about was avoiding the problems of Montreal, right? The Montreal Games in the '70s, where you know it ended up putting the city in a fiscal predicament, so. I think um, yeah there's a lot of important moments now, of course, in order to prepare the city for the Olympics, you get Dow Gates and his you know massive repression of black and brown people through various gang sweep uh maneuvers that would persist even afterwards, right so you've got uh militarization of the l a p d um, and a harshening set of of uh strategic practices that would, you know, again, add to the problems that would persist throughout the late eighties and up until the, the Rodney King rebellion in 92. So it's great being here in LA because like I was a huge fan of the Olympics. I was inspired by it. I still am, you know, I think, again, we can do both at the same time. Um, But I think, you know, as a, as a, Urbanist and as somebody who's been studying like mega events and development, you know, urban economic development for a while now, it's tough to to justify, you know, um, the the dislocation and displacement that happens, um, the appropriation of of public funds in order to stage these mega events, and again the re, uh, repressive tactics and you know ramped up policing that oftentimes comes along with it so we're, we're trying to have those conversations now um but again you know if if everything goes well with the group i'm working with we'll be able to talk about the historical uh moment of 84 as well you know sort of in advance of the 2028 game so i'm working on that i'm also just trying to enjoy that the book is out and uh, you know Probably respond to some critics, you know, in the coming months, next year. So we'll see.
2: Great. Well, Dr. Johnson, again, thank you for being on. Thank you for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And take care.
1: Thank you so much.